0: You're listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton.
1: Hello everyone and a very warm welcome. We're now into September, not far away from a significant date in millions of lives when the Partridge family first aired on ABC. Do you remember that first episode and where you were? September the 25th, 1970. And do you now sit and wonder, where have the past 50 years gone? I know I do. Reflecting on my teenage years, the dreams and ambitions I had. My guest today had no idea what he wanted to do with his life when he was a teenager. But name a popular television series from 1961 through to 1988, and chances are his name will be listed on the credits. The original series of Star Trek, The FBI, The Waltons, Heart to Heart, and Dynasty. Just a few among the dozens of shows he directed in his distinguished career including seven episodes of The Partridge Family. At 97, Ralph Senensky is a great storyteller. Growing up in Mason City, Iowa, he always had a love for the movies. He collected scrapbooks of his favourite movie stars and regards Gone with the Wind as the film which most affected his life. He first directed The Partridge Family in June 1970 and went on to work on a further six episodes. It was a real privilege to sit and talk with Ralph as we conducted our conversation over Zoom, reflecting on his career, the seven weeks with the Partridge family, recalling his experience of seeing David's father, Jack, on stage and working with his own favourite actress, Barbara Stanwyck. I started by asking him about the filming schedules on the Partridge family, beginning with his debut show, When Mother Gets Married.
0: The schedule, as it was presented to me, was that Monday would, would be a day to bring them in to read this, the script. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we were shot for three days. And Friday was a pickup day in case, and I had that a couple of times. Usually, if you didn't finish, if a musical number didn't get finished, then it would be done on a Friday. So we met on this Monday and of course there was Danny and even David and Susan and Jeremy and little Suzanne. That was like a prelude to what happened later when I had uh, dinner table scenes on the Waltons with the six kids. <laughs> and it, I, when I came back in the fall to do two of them, I just I didn't bother with the Monday. They got to have the day off. He uh, just came in and I like likened directing episodic television, like getting on a moving train and you just jump on as the train is going by and you climb up on top and then you run across the top and you get to the engine, you get down in the engine and then you take over running the train. I never really got over that. I mean, going on to a new show just to, to get the feel. It got easier as I, as I became more experienced. Usually I would have watched episodes to, to get a feel, and I always had the script. And mostly when I got the script, and if, if I kind of knew what the show was, I just had my own way of working. It went, really went back to what I had learned at the very beginning, and then did through all those years of directing plays, is that when you, when you got a new script, don't start in reading it to break down. Read it like a story to get your reaction to it, whatever your emotional reaction. That's the reaction you want your audience to have. And then you start working toward that.
1: Did you see anything in David that you thought, yeah, there's some kind of star quality here? Was he easy to direct? Oh, yes.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. And I have to say most, most, not all, but most, they, they don't come to the set for me to tell them of what to do. but block the scene of, of where they're supposed to move or there's any business. But they came prepared. They, they 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 did more than memorize the lines. In David's case, he recorded. He's the only one whose voice is on the track. And then, and I do not know what method he would be using to lip sync. That's not easy. That's not easy. And yet, he, he, his lip syncing was always right on. He was very young. I, I didn't anticipate that it would be... As big as it was, he he was real. He listened. I mean, he played the scenes beautifully and, and on the singing there was just great energy. And but uh, he he was he was fine. I mean, he was only twenty years old, but Shirley of course had done three major musicals, and, and that's not even her. She's just lip syncing to a track, but that was not her voice. This was supposed to be a very successful group. The tacky sets. And they were tacky. The tacky sets, you just, you just couldn't do justice to the music so that, and I ended up having to do that on When Mother Gets Married. And the second one, I mean, that was a set and I was in no position to say, oh, we shouldn't do it that way because they started on the set and then it became, the song became the background to a montage having to do with the courtship between Shirley and John McMartin. Uh, the next one, they, they were doing a club and it had to do with kids in the kitchen going on strike. That was just written into it, that it, it had to be that way. So it wasn't until, did I do Partridge of a pear tree And we got to that and, and if it, it it just said, you know, it just said again, a, a set, in a, a club, but there, there was nothing that, that said it had to be that way. And so I asked if I could do it save the set, save, they could save on all the, the extras that they would, the few extras, they would see it at the table. And I was stealing from Citizen Kane. When, when Orson Welles did the opera sequence, this worked even better than Citizen Kane because we were in color. And it had that bank of lights that they established and shot. And then after that, it was just a matter, pick an angle with either David or Shirley or groups, and then put spotlights up, you would have spotlights, up on the stage behind them. And it just, I thought, it, and I still think, it just brought an excitement to the music numbers that it didn't have before. And you know, it had a fine cameraman, Freddie Fred Jackman, you know, and, and, and he picked the lights and, you know, get flares in the camera. I mean, it just created, it, it, it was just more exciting than seeing plain close-ups against that very set. That whole cast, I worked with Shirley again later, but David and the rest of them, I've never seen them since, and that was 50 years ago. 50 years. There's a thing of being on a stage, and I, you know, without being an actor in the, the early years in high school, and there were a couple of times where I was on on a stage as, as a performer, and there, there is an excitement that comes over to you from the audience, because they don't have that. They, I mean, he and Shirley just did it. I get so many comments left of people telling me how much, how it just became important for them. And television at that time, not all television, but shows like The Partridge Family because of Bernie Slade. And I never knew, but I'm sure that there, was, there was a writing staff, there was a producer, and I think there was a man, Dale McCraven, I think, who was on staff, who was a writer. But I'm sure that Bernie did for The Partridge Family, what uh, Earl Handler did for the Waltons.
1: Where would you place the Partridge family now in the history of uh, American television?
0: I, I think just the fact that 50 years later and it's still playing, because not all of them are. Not all of them are. I, I just happen to like it. Of the four sitcoms that I did, uh, Partridge family is really the only one that I know of is that, that's still playing in, in in the streaming of cable. But they all were true to what they were trying to do, and they weren't gimmicky. I mean, Portrait Family wasn't gimmicky. Only, only one of the seven that I did was kind of contrived and not as not as honest, but six of them, and, you know, I think I was lucky. Because um, you
1: mentioned about stealing a scene from Citizen Kane. Was it the norm to steal ideas for, for television sitcoms from the bigger movies?
0: Oh, yes, I mean, on the FBI, I did a rip-off of Wages of Fear, which was a French film. And, and we, we did, they, they took the basic plot and then just made it work. On on Star Trek, I did a version of Moby Dick, Twilight Zone, I did Faust. There's some book, and I used to have a copy of it, there was some book that said there were only, and I've even forgotten the number, there are only so many plots. I, mean, I think it's whether they said, they're just basically 24 plots, and it was some ridiculous number like that, and it's, it's probably true, and you just do variation. The undergraduate, the parents come to visit Shirley, and she has this costume on, and and I I think that wonderful actress, I forget, have forgotten her name. I worked with her husband before. That's one of my favorite scenes of anything, because of Shirley and Norman Fell. I mean, I almost had the film cut my in my mind as I, as they shot it, but then each each angle, you do however many takes. One take could be could be fine, and I've you know I've done takes where I went to seventeen or twenty
1: five. Did you enjoy the Dora Dora Dora? Oh yes, that was fun.
0: Tor 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 Dora, Dora Dora Dora. I used that same girl a three like, years later in an episode of the FBI. David's reaction and just the idea of, of the, the looks of the girl. Obliterated his mind to what he was hearing. I, I mean, to to sing that way, and I don't know. I don't know who who did the singing, but it was the track. And there again, Robin had to. i never asked, but I'm sure that they gave her a copy so that she could go home and practice lip singing. I I think I think on, this. Guess who's coming to drive? I did say. I, I wonder what we're going to do with this tuna. <laughs> I, I I was aware that it wasn't. But the other scripts, I, I just didn't mind. I just thought, I, I, I kind of liked them.
1: Guess Who's Coming to Drive was your least favourite. Well, it, 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 as, as a show, it,
0: it, it kind of worked. But I, I was aware that it was the weakest. It's not least favourite, but it was the weakest script. Probably my favourite uh, musical sequence in it. Because that's the one where I do the same spotlights, but with the, with the filter.
1: Yes, where they sang Rainmaker.
0: Yes. And I think it's the star filter that, that I asked Freddie Jackman to put on. Fred Jackman, who was, he was not a terribly old man. He, he was a mature man. But his father had been a cameraman in silence. With shows like that, it was kind of difficult for me doing sitcoms. I mean, it happened so fast. I mean, to, to do a story in 24 minutes, it was hard to do it in, in 51 minutes. It was just hard. If you just wanted more time, you know, but you had to make everything count.
1: Do you find yeah. in David in particular had some very good comedic timing? Yeah,
0: well, that was the other thing. Dave, David had fine timing. Danny was unbelievable. And and that is a trick. You either have it or you don't. And boy, did he have it. And of course, if, if you look at When leather Gets Married, which was done very early, it, it was written by a Slade, And I don't know, it, it aired fifth, but because it was done earlier, I don't know whether it, it might have been done even earlier than in terms of the lineup of shooting. But if you'll notice, Danny doesn't have that much to do with that. He, he has some funny lines, but he's one of the mob. By the time I came back later for To Play or Not to Play, because he became the, the negotiator. And then, of course, the wonderful one, uh, Partridge of a pear Tree, where he... She takes over as as uh, David's business manager. There's another serious scene between them in of a Pear Tree, where he's where where he just uh, he just doesn't have no, enough money. And if, if really, I I prefer to them as my Judge Hardy scenes, and Andy from the Hardy family. Yes. And then and that was the thing that, that they they worked into those. And that's Bernie Slade and whatever influence they had, and something like. Somebody like Bernie and, and Earl, they can affect not only the scripts they actually write, but everything about a show. The director is the storyteller. He's going to do it with, with visual and audio. And not unlike the conductor of an orchestra. He doesn't play all the instruments, but he's bringing them all together into a unified whole. And that's that, that to me is what the director is. And you know ahead of time, I mean, I, I like to affect an audience. Twice in my life I've done Two play two plays where at the end of the play, I was standing and they were both in small theaters, one in Santa Monica, one in Beverly Hills. I was standing at Death of a Salesman and watch on the ride. The other thing is you want to hear if you're doing a comedy, you want to hear people laugh. And I mean they don't just laugh, they laugh when you want them to laugh. You tell them you tell them when they're gonna laugh by about what's happening on the stage. That's comedy timing.
1: Do you adopt the same principle when you direct a drama as you would a sitcom?
0: Absolutely. What you're doing, I mean, you you make allowances for whether it's comedy or drama, but it has to be real. And unfortunately, too many sitcoms don't do what they should do.
1: Can you recall the events leading up to landing the first Partridge Family episode?
0: No. No. Well, you know, we never were booked, in other words, to, to get a script, you want to do it. Uh once, once I was established, and by the time I did The Partridge Family, I'd, I'd been around for nine years. And once you were established as a director, you agents. And I was with a large agency, so there literally was a different agent for each studio. And at the beginning of the season, they would just go out and contact and be contacted. And you would, that uh, would be booked for a date, the, the schedule for the year, well, almost many times, right at, right at the beginning of the year, you were kind of lined up for most of the year with your dates and later they, the Directors Guild finally stepped in and said that the producers should have have delivered a the, the script to the director three days ahead. That didn't always happen and, I mean, there were a couple of of Route 66 and a Naked City, I didn't get the final pages of the till into the fifth day of filming. No, 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 no that, that was just it. But most, most of the time, uh, if if you didn't have it three days ahead, and, and with the Partridge family, they would have it the day that I reported, and they they would work for a week. I mean, they did a new show every week uh, for a half hour show. That, that was like five days. Uh, I would, I think we would. have We would be booked for seven days, a couple of days prep, and then to do it. And Monday was supposed to be a reading day. (laughs) That just that didn't work out (laughs) with the six kids. After after that day, I guess they liked me, so they booked me for two more. But I just went in and did the two back to back. In other words, we didn't really need a prep on a half hour show because there there weren't that many guest stars to be cast and. Uh, mostly like the first one of John McMartin. I mean, who's going to say no to that? Or Ray Bolger, or Rosemary DeCamp. We didn't have to audition people. They, they, they just booked them. The other thing about doing television, you just went in and did it. I mean, there wasn't all this time to sit around, discuss. And figure things out. It was almost like drive-through, especially with the half-hour shows. The half-hour shows group. There, there was more. in shows like the Quinn Martin shows where you had six or seven days of prep, and most of that time was spent out looking for the locations because we would do four days of location and three days in the studio. And so there was there was prep. About an hour and a half, hour of shows. You just did them. I didn't work for a time until Jimmy Comack on The Courtship of Eddie's Father was just. In, they were they were beginning to film The Courtship of Eddie's Father a year ahead of when it would go on the air, and he didn't want sitcom directors. And he he knew of me years before I was directing Carolyn Jones in an episode of Doctor Kildare. And Jimmy was just out from New York. He was an actor, aspiring producer-director, and he'd been in Damn Yankees, and he knew Carolyn, and he was on the set, and he told me this. The reason he he, he called me out, you know, and wanted to talk to me, uh, he didn't want sitcom directors, and he liked the fact that when I talked to the actors to give them instruction, I always talked to them. Nobody could hear what we were saying. It was all very personal and up close, so that I, I didn't want the actor to have everybody on the set checking to see whether they were doing what the director told them to do. He liked that. Once I did that, there was a representative at an ad agency. He had kind of knew of me and then he represented Mission Impossible and he was an ad agent a representative. So he was at that point representing the Bill Cosby show and they were having director problems. and So he recommended me. So I did that. And then I did the Partridge family I think was probably Bob Claver, because I didn't know anybody else. And then right after that, another friend of mine was producing Annie and the Professor. So for about a year and a half, I was a sitcom director.
1: Is there normally a close relationship between a writer and the director?
0: Most of the writers of the scripts I did, I never met. I mean, on our shows, by the time I got there, the writer had turned in his script and he was gone. And my contact would be with Usually, the associate producer, people like Charles Larson on Twelve O'Clock High and the FBI, Gene Coon. I mean, they—they're the ones who did most of the rewriting. Or the on um, the Waltons, Earl Hamner. But he also had a, uh, a story editor, Carol McKean, wonderful writer. They were there, but I—I I never met the writers of the script. I did.
1: Can you remember your first day on the set?
0: The main studio for Columbia was in Hollywood, City Corner from the CBS building where I first spent about, about a year in the mimeo department. They, they had this ranch out in, in, uh, in Burbank and it was wonderful. I mean, it was small, which I like, I think they had four or five sound stages, but their backlight, it was just one big, I mean, you walked out of the studio and you were on the back lot as compared to Universal and Metro where it had to go and it was another lot. No, it was charming. It was just charming. I mean, and and when we had exterior days, and we didn't have that many on Partridge Family, but we did have them. But you didn't have to travel someplace. You just did it, and then you walked to to your soundstage to continue working. And it it just was nice. And I liked, I I liked the little lots. I liked that. I liked Desilu, which was the old RKO lot.
1: In this first episode, Jaslyn Smith was cast.
0: I think she was. She was in two scenes. In yeah. one scene, she didn't have any dialogue in. I, I really didn't get to know actors. Even, even the ones I worked with, you know, were, I just knew the care. I, I, I was acquainted with the characters they played. That, yeah. that, that's who I spent my time
1: with. Can I take take you back for for a moment? Oh, sure. Um, to when movies became very important in, in your life?
0: We used to go to the, either the Cecil or the Palace Theatre every Saturday, as far back as I can remember, and would sit through, and with no aspiration, I had no thought that I was going to, you know, that I would end up doing that. I, I just went because I loved the movies. I just loved them, all. I
1: yeah.
0: loved them all, and I loved the stars, and still do the stars of that period, you know, the Joan Crawfords, Gary Cooper, James Cagney, and even some that I got to work with, Joan Blondell, whom I got to work with.
1: Wasn't Barbara Stanwyck one of your favourite? Yeah. Oh yes, yes. yes. Mm-hmm.
0: It still is. I only did one show with her, but oh, what a great
1: lady. Tell us the story of working with Barbara Stanwyck on The Big Valley. We were doing a
0: scene in the living room area of the ranch with Barbara Stanwyck and all of the kids. And at that time, there were five of them. It was Richard Long, Linda Evans, Peter Breck, Lee Majors, and a fifth boy. And I've forgotten his name because he only lasted one season then he sort of disappeared. And when you did a scene, you would block the scene, get everybody in the position, block it, and then the camera crew would mark on the floor with the pieces of tape, the positions, so that when they're done with that, we send them off and they light the set with sand ins And the, the five kids, each would go off to their own dressing room, Miss Stanwick would come over and sit down in her chair, which was right by the camera, and just sit there and wait. And then, when the cameraman was lit and ready, he'd tell the assistant director that he was ready. And the second assistant would go off to call everybody back. Missy, as she wanted to be called, Missy would get up and go, and she'd be standing on her mark as they all returned. And they did that. And then, once you have your master filmed, then you're, you're going to do your first close up. and. They sent everybody off with a stand-in on the mark for that first close-up. And then the second one, and each time they all went and Missy would come and sit in her chair. Finally, after the third or fourth time, as she sat down and I sat down next to her and I said, Missy, that's not right. You're out there standing, waiting for them to arrive. They should be out there waiting for you. And she smiled appreciatively. The assistant director, who was an old-timer, standing nearby, and he heard. He overheard that. He said, "That's Missy. That's Missy. That's just the way she was." He said, and he said Bob was the same way. And Stanley looked at me with that special look that she had. I know. I saw it several times in Double Indemnity. And she looked at me and she said,
1: "I trained him right." That's Robert Taylor. Tell me why Gone with the Wind as a movie affected you so much. There's an amusing story attached to this, which really opened up your whole career as a director.
0: At that point, I'd been taking piano lessons from the time I was seven. And I was not a prodigy, but I think I was pretty good. In high school, I was a junior in high school and Mason City High School didn't grade A, B, C, D. They graded percentage, and I just liked 99. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> By third year, I, in my English class with Elizabeth Graves, and uh, she also, besides teaching English, she was the person supervising the school page, which was a page in in, in the Saturday edition of the Mason City Club Couset, a high school school page, and I was the editor. And I stayed out of school in the spring of 1939, I guess. No, no, 1940. I stayed out of school in the spring to go with my mother to see Gone with the Wind, which was playing Roadshow. There was a matinee and an evening performance. And so I stayed out of school and went went with my mother to the Roadshow. And I don't know how Miss Graves found out, but my final grade, for the fourth quarter was not a 99, it was only a 95. Well, that was goodbye, Miss Graves. And I goodbye to the editorship. I was gonna put up with that kind of nonsense. So the next year I was at loose ends. And I, I also to, to protect my 99, I was not that good at gym, which I took gym and uh, study hall my freshman year. But after that, rather than four subjects and that, I did five subjects. But even with that, I still visit Lucens you know, to fill in my time. They were going to have auditions for the senior class play, so I thought, well, I'll go audition. I mean, I had no aspirations as an actor. I, I wasn't an actor ever have, been. but I, I thought, well, I'll just go audition, and I did. But I didn't get cast. So, but I wanted to be involved, so I ended up being the assistant to the to the director, and she was she was just wonderful, Myrtle Ullman. I was so taken with, with it that the, the, the next year made arrangements with the school to be her assistant on all of the plays for part of my tuition and did. The year I was in, my freshman year in junior college, there was a, we had a drama a drama club, uh, Wigan Asp. And I think we would, of course, Miss Ullman would supervise that and we would meet. And by spring, I thought, well, I'm going to try to direct a play. And I picked a play, which I shouldn't have been, Gloria Mundi, The Gloria of the World. It's about a young girl who finds herself in an insane asylum. Everybody is insane except she's not. And the day after we did that at, at our meeting, Miss Holman, and I can still see where we were standing in her classroom, and she just said, you could be a director. I said, Oh, well, I could never do that. I mean, you only have one life to live. I mean, you have to do what, what you want to do. I wanted to get involved in Fine Street Theatre, and there were a lot of them in L.A.
1: What, what do you think, looking back, made the Partridge family the success that it was?
0: Just feeling a family. Again, the warmth. The warmth. And there was always kind of a message, a little bit of a message. I'm not one of those that believes that messages were only for Western Union. I think that a, a good... A good show, comedy or drama, should be saying something. And that's, and that's why television was so good in those days. Why so much of it was so good. I mean, Kill There, Ben Casey, Twilight Zone, Route 66, Naked City, I mean, and, and Star Trek.
1: What do you consider your best work? That I'm still here. <laughs> Have you fulfilled all your ambitions? Oh,
0: more, more than.
1: What What is life like for you now? Do you uh, still I, yearn to be creative in some way?
0: Well, I've I've, I've used the, the the website as an outlet. I use that, and and uh, the difficult thing now is that I've just run out of shows to write about. Do you know how old I'm? Sure, you know how old I am. I do. Right
1: I do, and I don't believe you.
0: <laughs> and, and, uh, is is just simpler and and a lovely life. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if I could go back and relive, I mean, you know, just all of a sudden become 40 years, 40 years old again, Uh, knowing what I know now, uh, because I know now more, I know more now than I knew then, obviously. And and that would be fun. But I mean, as it is, I mean, to think in terms now of going forward, it's just, you know, day by day. And fortunately, you know, to to have day by day in the kind of condition I'm in. I should say thank you, shouldn't I? Yes. <laughs> just a c- couple of days ago, I mean, and, and I use it. I just got a haircut <laughs> a couple, couple days ago. A barber, a friend, a friend of mine who had, it's a barber who can't, can't work because the salon is closed. And so he's go- going home to home and just, and a friend of mine has mm-hmm. been going to And so he and another friend, the barber came over and gave the three of us haircuts out in my backyard. I and mean, look behind me, that, 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 that's a, a big patio. And I mean, I, I, I couldn't resist because I said, I told him, I said, just two weeks ago, my kid brother celebrated his 93rd birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 that, that's the line I like to pull. Cause...
1: Life has clearly been good to you, Ralph. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I mean, I really
0: got to do all the things I set out and wanted to do. And if I didn't get to do all of them, I mean, uh, you know, you start off and you think, well, I want to direct a great big feature film, you know, and work in films. And never never quite got there, got to do some on movies for television. But the whole thing is that episodic, which really was, in, in my day, was... Almost a dirty word. The, the, the only thing, only, only thing, in, of directors below that was to be doing daytime soap, and yet today, uh, and, and this has just happened within the last decade, maybe fifteen years. I mean, you know, back back then, uh, I was known within the community, but uh, people, people didn't know who I was. But they do now, as compared as compared to. You know, and and the fact that I did it for 26 years. Mm -hmm. You know, I did it for 26 years. And uh, at the end, was still the last six or seven years, I did Dynasty, Heart to Heart, and Paper
1: Chase. Do you think that what you saw in David Cassidy on The Partridge Family could have opened up a whole new world for him in film?
0: Oh, I'm sure. sure. Oh, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, because... That, that was a springboard for David, absolutely. And he, you know, he he managed it well. He had he had good stock. Uh, his dad, Jack Cassidy. I did just one show with Jack, and it was it, 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 it was it, it was one of the Quinn Martin cop shows. But I remember Jack in, and I can't remember the name the name. Of it. it was the music, the Broadway musical version of *Shop Around the Corner*. And I can't remember the name of it. But Jack did not have. Raymond Matt, Daniel Massey, Daniel Massey had the leading male role and Jack had a, you know, the secondary role, but he had a musical number of the in the second act. And I just remember being in the theater and he just, I, I felt the theater rocking. He just was overpowering him. And it was this great number. And, and I remember the years later, and I remember that musical, you know, as being a favorite. I think Barbara Cook was also in it. And then there was a production that they were doing in the LA air, a revival, and I went to it just waiting for that number. The number was there, but the Rocky Theater wasn't. It was somebody else it just wasn't there.
1: And you saw you saw that in in his son on the yeah,
0: no, not as overpowering as Jack. I mean, and he basically was a teenager when I when I saw him. I, the beginning of a career, but you know somebody like that at the beginning of a career. You know, at that point you appraised them for what they're doing then, but you can't, you can't foretell, because there's so many that I've seen where they they didn't have the careers I thought they should have had. I mean, I worked with Jodie Foster when she was sick, and she was wonderful, but I didn't, couldn't have anticipated, but I'm not surprised that it, that it happened.
1: Can you tell us what it was like working with Shirley Jones, and give us an example of the power of television?
0: The, the musical number, Shirley got the same that was 40 year Yeah. And I yes. thought you saw her singing because she was so great at it. And there was all this vitality and the sparkly eyes and, and just doing it. But there she, you got to hear that, that incredible voice. I, I have a great story that I, have, that I can tell you about Shirley. Okay. One day, and I don't know during which show it was. She was a little upset that day. And she told me, her, and I don't know which one, Sean, one of her sons who at that time would have been a teenager, and he had a musical group, and that night she hadn't known about it. He had arranged, they were going to be performing something, and he had, he had done it all on his own, and she hadn't known, and she, I mean, here she was, this big star, and but she was just a concerned mother that day on this. I just remember the two of us sitting in our in our director's chair, and she kind of had to say it because she, she just was she just was, was consumed with it and worried about, about this teenage boy. But he had gone off and done all of this. We didn't tell her, did, and had made all the arrangements, and they were going to be performing that night. She she was she was uh, she was an ordinary mother that day, you know. my concentration, I'd been was always on what I'm doing, and I had my. Director's manuscript. There, you know, always doing this shot, but looking ahead to the next shot, and you know, in doing doing shots. I mean, when you when you when you shot your master, then you you didn't shoot the sequence. Well, you never shot a script in sequence, but then when you're shooting a master, you don't want to shoot this way, and then shoot this way, and then shoot that. way. you want to shoot this way, and then get everything going this way that you can just to save time before you reverse it. And you just to have that laid out in four sequences. I mean, uh, partridge, the Partridge family with the, the, shorter, you know, the shorter scenes and the shorter script. is not as complex as, say, some of the Quinn Martin shows. You know, television and movies today is, it's, they're, they're doing it differently and it's not as good. It just plain isn't as good remarkable that with her career, both on the stage, those three, the three big musicals, Oklahoma, Carousel, The Music Man, and an Oscar for Elmer Gantry. And yet today, mostly she's remembered for the Partridge family. That is the remarkable thing about that, that era. And it was just, it was a very small era in television. You know, There there was the, what they call the golden age, which was the the decade before, the decade of the 50s, with live television in New York, and it started to move out. And I I was lucky that I wasn't a part of that, except Playhouse 90 was an extension when they, they CBS built this you know, studio studio center in Beverly and Fairfax, with the four big studios that surpassed any the thing they, they had in New York in terms of a sound stage. And that, that was kind of the end of of live dramatic television as it moved in the 60s, finally moved out to Hollywood. And of course yes. that whole era when it first came out to Hollywood television, uh, we were doing scripts that really were very much in the mode of what they had done on live television. I mean, they they, they were meaningful scripts about subjects. We'll never have stars again like the stars of the 30s and the 40s the, the, the time of the big studios. Beryl Street, yes. Tom Hanks, yes. Al Pacino, yes. But the others come and they have a moment and they fade and it's not its not their fault. It's the system.
1: Your final thoughts on the Partridge Family days?
0: The day we spent at, uh, not UCLA, but the, the, the other camp, the other USC campus with Sherry when she went to college. Yeah, that, that was that was a good day, and it was like a prelude. That was that was my first time working there, but then 15, 16 years later, I was back there many times when I did the paper chase because that that was that, that was the campus that we used for the for whatever law school the boys were at. I love shooting on location, the humor of the scripts, and the fact that. The funny lines are, are funny lines, they're, they're not gimmicky, but I mean, they're really genuinely funny lines. There's one when when Susan is talking about, about about her mother and that, she thinks it's funny you know, for her mother to possibly have a, a relationship at this stage of her life. It's like Romeo and Juliet. And David says, well, and look what happened to them. That's a funny line.
1: It is. And that was a very good close-up scene. Yes. And, and and
0: scenes like that are are easier for the, the director just because they just they almost stage themselves. You, just, you know the scene and you just know what you're gonna do. You don't have to work to, to do something fans. Comedy should be played in two shots, not in co- not because then you can control the timing. And uh and they, 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 that show offered. Off of that. They knew that each time they started a new show, that the, it might be a new director. And so that they, they came ready to do their, their, I mean, we just were a bunch of professionals that got together. And, you know, at the, at the beginning, you know, I would have tell them what to do on the first scene. And they were just were actors expecting to, to do it and then working together. And then the confidence both ways would grow as you did more. The voices, I mean, if you look at them today, you don't even hear them. But but David, you could hear, and of course, I I, I was hearing the voice off of the, the track, which was his voice. His his voice is identifiable on the track, and I, and I'm sure that he, again, this was the beginning. This was the beginning of his career, and later he did the Broadway musicals, and I, and he was successful, and he did country.
1: Yeah, you, you you were there at the very beginning a of the start of the partridge family being a landmark in television but also the start of one person's incredible yes
0: yes Uh, that that was exciting yeah of course you do know that everything i've told you is a lie i know
1: (laughs) 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 i never believed a word of it
0: (laughs) i'm not doing this so Somebody will discover me and put me to work. I've learned this from my website, which I've been at now for eleven years, and uh, I just I started it as a lark. When I did my first one, I didn't have film clips. I didn't know you could do it with film clips, and I did my first one, and then somebody, my computer man explained to me about film clips, and they have guard, guide. They guided me through the learning. I have been amazed at, at the response and mm-hmm. the people, not only. They remember, but how they soak up and and still appreciate it. Partridge Family had it, but it was something that so many of those shows, especially in the 60s and the 70s, up up through the Waltons, it was waning off, but it was still there. That the human stories.
1: I am so pleased that we've been able to see and speak to each other like this. Well, thank you. <laughs> you you know how
0: to turn Zoom off, because I you know I had to call my computer man.
1: i hope to speak to you again soon
0: it's been a pleasure
1: ralph was just wonderful to speak to do visit his comprehensive website senensky.com to read more about his incredible career it's also great to read your reviews and thoughts on the David Cassidy Connections podcast. I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's emailed me and sent personal messages through Facebook and Twitter telling me how much you enjoyed the conversations with lifelong fan Philip Clark and singer Katie Floyd, who gave us that exclusive performance of her song Daydreamer, which she wrote about David. I would also like to thank everyone who has bought my book. Cherish david cassidy a legacy of love it's great to hear how much you enjoy reading the memories which fans shared with me generously giving their time over the phone through video messaging and in person to share their memories and tributes so everyone do stay in touch keep sharing your reviews and rating the series so we can reach even more fans and share our beautiful memories until next week stay safe